and welcome to From City to the World. I'm your host, Vince Boudreaux. I'm the president of the City College of New York. From City to the World is a show about how the work that we're doing here at City College matters to people across the city and throughout the world. We'll discuss the practical application of our research in solving real-world issues like poverty, homelessness, climate change, the integration of immigrants into our community, healthcare disparities. Today, we're going to take a look at one of the schools here at the college that teaches students the value of service and leadership in their communities, and that'll give us an opportunity to talk more generally about the, the role of service and political activity in contemporary life. Um, City College has the Colin Powell School for Civic and Global Leadership, which offers students real-life experiences so they can learn to solve some of the real-world issues that I just mentioned. So I'm really pleased today in the studio to have uh, the Dean of the Colin Powell School, Professor of Political Science, Andy Rich. He's the author of Think Tanks, Policy, po Public Policy, and the Politics of Expertise. He was previously the Chairman of the Political Science Department at City College, as well as the Deputy Director of Programs at the Colin Powell School when it was the Colin Powell Center. And in fact, he and I worked really closely together uh, in those years building the center into, into what became the school. He spent his entire career thinking about what service promotion among young people should look like. So from 2009 to 2011, he was the president and CEO of the Roosevelt Institute, and he launched the Institute's think tank and oversaw efforts to expand and strengthen its campus network. And, and really in those years, took the Roosevelt Institute to new heights. Um, in 2011, he became the executive secretary and CEO of the Harry S. Truman Scholarship Foundation. And that's a foundation that provides merit-based scholarships to students who plan to attend graduate school to become public service leaders. During his tenure at Truman, the foundation has enjoyed record numbers of applicants. And I'll say that at City College, uh, we have always been tremendously proud of, of the students that get Truman fellowships. Uh, it, it, it's, it's an indication both of their excellence but also their commitment to service. And so it's appropriate that after um, serving as the executive secretary and CEO of that fellowship program, Dean Rich has now come back to City College to, uh, to run the Colin Powell School. He's a graduate of the University of Richmond. That's where he got his BA. And he also at Richmond received a Truman Scholarship. Uh, he earned a PhD at Yale University in political science. And I'm pleased that he is now back at City College as one of our newest deans. Um, Dean Rich, welcome to From City to the World. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. So let me just start by asking you to reflect a little bit about your career. It's taken you from academic institutions where you pioneered some, some efforts. For instance, when we worked together at the Colin Powell Center, it was you that brought the whole concept of service learning to the center, something that we're now doing more generally across the campus. Um, but you've gone from campus work into Roosevelt Institute, Truman Scholarship Program, and back. Could you sort of give us a sense of what themes in your mind have united the work you've done in all these, you know, in some ways very different places? Yeah, I, um, I mean, I guess in some ways I might even take you a little bit further back, which was, you know, when I was in college, I was a political science major and was very involved in politics and became really interested in American politics. And while in college, um, I'm originally from Delaware um, and worked in politics there. I was a driver for a guy who was in Congress for an election season, and then he ran for governor, and I was a driver in his kind of scheduler well, at that Let me time. just interrupt you. Um, yeah. Delaware, that's a, that's that's what that's, that's one of the most important states in the nation, oh, as you I, well I, know. I'd forgotten it was one of our <laughs> states, but go ahead. Go on. I can't miss a chance to talk about Delaware. So um, from there, you know, I, I, I was thinking a lot about what, what direction I wanted to go. I cared a lot about public service, and, and I'd say that is kind of knit together in my career. And I care a lot about democracy and kind of the state of American democracy and how it's evolving. And, you know, thought about becoming a lawyer, thought about becoming a policy person and getting a master's in public policy. And in the end, chose to get a PhD because I thought that's where you could really examine these questions of how democracy works. And, and ultimately, for me, became very interested in the questions of how democracy works up against capitalism. You know, capitalism is our economic system, democracy is our political system. And so... Um, became a professor, was your colleague for a bunch of years and loved it and have always in, in that work been committed to the opportunities and the empowerment of young people and a belief that, you know, for all the problems we have, they can be overcome if we can bring new generations into public service. 
Um, and then my my academic work had been um, about the role of think tanks in American policymaking and how, in particular, these were a set of institutions that went from being kind of expertise-producing institutions to um, sources of ideology, and particularly how the conservative movement in this country advanced a set of ideas that really shifted our politics over the last 50 years. And so that um, that became the kind of issue that animated the next stages of my career, and I went and had the opportunity to to build a progressive think tank built on the legacy of Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt, but to kind of bring the values that animated their work in the 20th century into the 21st century, and then kind of go from there. It's it's not usual for somebody to teach at an academic institution, go out, and then come back to the same institution. And in some ways, you never really left, right? You you directed our uh, Skadden Arps uh, honors program in legal studies. You ran our semester in Washington. But given those values, given those commitments to uh, what is it about City College that that has has kept you kind of in our orbit, even as you've taken on these different challenges? Well, you know, so part of what got me interested in think tanks was was the idea that these were the places where public intellectuals go and that in some sense universities had ceded that space. You know, if you go back to the middle and latter parts of the 20th century, universities were really the sources of public intellectuals. And and so I got caught up in that work and 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 left but always kind of kept a foot in, but part of what kind of animates my and and, and and informs my my enthusiasm for City College is a belief that this place is different, um, that it has always been a place that is publicly focused. It has always been a place that is small p political. It, our mission is political. Our purpose is um, in some sense controversial, even though it shouldn't be in our society. And and our orientation is to be involved in the community, to be engaged. You know, I certainly think that's true for the Colin Powell School. We're the School of Social Sciences at City College. And so everything from psychology to sociology, political science, economics, anthropology. Um, and in all of our work, you know, we're doing first class academic scholarship, but we are also looking for ways to think about problems that are affecting Harlem, New York City, this nation and the world. And to, to make sure that our work, I think we really have been, um, long before I got there and back when you were dean of the Colin Powell School, really concerned with um, recruiting and retaining faculty who care about the world around us and whose questions in their research are focused on that. And and then, and then part of what drew me back to City College was the opportunity to be part of an institution that, that is interested in shifting power in our society. You know, I guess for me, coming to this as a political scientist, power looms large in my analysis of the world. And um, and part of the challenge is that, um, you know, if you go back to where I started, democracy, in my view, has really been overrun by capitalism. You know, it's, it's it, the democratic system has become um, a pawn of a kind of capitalist economic system. And, you know, you can believe in capitalism, but you should still understand that it has, it should stay in its lane. We need democracy not to be infected by the money from the capitalist economic system, you know, and, and sort of all the other things that come with it. And 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 those are really big problems in our politics. And and they're structural and and frankly at this moment they're constitutional. And in my mind, the way through is through the energies of young people. You know, that it is going to take a couple of generations. These are not policy problems in a narrow sense. You know, I just spent seven and a half years living in Washington and we think about everything as if there's a policy fix to it. There's no policy fixes to this. This is going to take movements, and it's going to take a generation or two of folks who really think and um, organize and um, engage in different ways to make those changes. And, and I think there's no finer institution where we're training folks for that kind of work than City College. I think it's embedded in our, what, 172-year history. We have always been that place. Um, and and in all the time I've been here as a professor and as an instructor, I have taught so many students who have a sophisticated understanding of how power operates in our society and how some people have it, and most of the time they don't, um, and how they can get it and how they can organize to get it. And that there's nothing more rewarding in my mind than, than getting to work with those students and being a part of the project of helping them get power in our world. That's, that, that, that prompts me to, to, to say, in, in, you know, on this show where we usually 
pair somebody from City College with somebody outside City College. And in the second half of the program, we'll be joined by Mohammed Alam, one of your former students, a former Colin Powell fellow on campus who has recently been elected to a two-year term as the vice president of the Young Democrats of America. Yeah. So exactly the kind of activist. And I believe was the head of the Roosevelt, the That's student right. Roosevelt Network. Yeah. So kind of one of your, one of your uh, uh, prodigy here on campus. I, I, I want to ask you... Um, um, one question that's prompted by something you said about the role of universities and how it's changed. Um, because I've quoted you, this idea that universities have kind of lost their position as the shapers of public discourse. Um, I, I think it's right, and I think it's necessary for us to play a kind of different role. But, but how do you go about repositioning a university to play that role? And, and I guess that's also a way of asking you you know, now you're in position to shape how a whole school at City College is going to address these concerns. So, you know, is that part of your program for the Colin Powell School? And could you kind of unpack that a little bit for us? Yeah, I mean, th those are big questions and big challenges. But but I, I think, you know, one of the things I have been saying to anybody who will listen since I started as dean is um, that I think there's an opportunity for us to think in some sense, more creatively than we're often invited to do in academia. That, you know, we have some fascinating, interesting, entrepreneurial, and really quite different programs in the Colin Powell School, you know, around community organizing, community change. Our, we have a master's in public administration that I think doesn't look like any other program in the country. We have a chance to make it even more different. And um, and across a range of programs in psychology and sociology and economics, we can we can do things in a way that are that that is more or oriented around the community and oriented around our students having the kinds of training combined with the kind of theoretical and academic knowledge they need to be simultaneously good citizens engaged people in community um, and prepared for the workforce. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of that conversation isn't going on in academia in the ways that I would encourage it and that um, is a way that I think academia used to be organized. So, so I mean, so part of it is having a more intentional conversation and then part of it is forming partnerships with um, local organizations, local um efforts that are trying to create change and seeing where we can't get our students plugged in and actually get our faculty plugged in to producing work and producing leaders who can be part of the movement for change. I mean, one of the things that I think is most essential for us is making sure our students, So, and this is probably my top priority at the moment, making sure as many of our students as we can um, uh, afford to do this for, uh, that they get meaningful professional experiences while they're still in college, that we don't see that as an add-on, but we see it as an integrated part of the educational experience at City College. And, you know, going back to what you and I started at the Colin Powell Center around service learning, it's making sure that at least where the opportunities exist, the curriculum, the courses have direct relationship with real public problems and with partners in the Harlem community around New York City so that our students have that kind of an experience to both learn from but also then to draw on when they go out and look for a job. Mm -hmm. So let's actually talk a little bit about the moment that we're in nationally and, 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 and where you see this mission you have for City College and the students here. This is a moment of you know, real cynicism about, about uh, well, certainly about government, in some ways about at least some varieties of service. I, I know a lot of students, when they think about service, they're oriented immediately towards, you know, advocacy or social movements. But, I mean, where do you see the relationship between this mission of getting our students involved in a project for changing the trajectory of democracy and capitalism in the country and the particular moment we're at in, in the U.S. Yeah, I get, you know, it's interesting. I, I don't think young people are as cynical as people our age. I think, and I'm in a lot of conversations with people our age all the time. And and I will say this: uh, this is what I thought. You know, at the Truman Foundation, we supported young people committed to careers in public service. So from across the country, we would bring together folks who really wanted to make a difference. And they were typically 19, 20, 21. And we worked with them through their 20s. And you know, here we get an opportunity to do that on a much larger scale. This Truman was a relatively small program. You know, here we have, you know, arguably 3,500, 4,000 students in the Colin Powell School. Um, and, and what I find in my conversations with them and what I hear from my colleagues who, who are teaching them is, you know, they're, they're thinking about problems in different ways. They don't see this as their political moment. It's not that they're naive about what's happening 
in our political system at this moment. They actually, I think, as I said before, have a more sophisticated analysis of it, that it actually has historical roots, that this isn't just an aberration, but this, you know, what's what's going on in our politics can be understood in terms of a set of decisions that people our age and older have made in the political system and around the political system um, that have that made it possible for our politics to be so far off track. But but the reason they're less cynical is they just they know that their moment is coming. And um and I you know we have launched at the Colin Powell School just since I started and frankly in part from your encouragement something called a climate policy fellows program which is to support students not just in the social sciences but in engineering architecture and um the sciences engineering and engineering um in um in thinking about how they can affect the debates around sustainability, resiliency, and climate change in our country. And um, what I find among those students is we're getting a little bit of, looks like there must be some, something going on. Um, Maybe the vote just happened. <laughs> this, this, that could, be, could well be the alert. Um, so what we're seeing among the climate policy fellows is an appetite to think in an interdisciplinary, cross-divisional way about the problems of our country and our world, of the climate that they're living in. And and one of the things that kind of inspires me among them is we've been doing kind of intensive training led by one of our alums, one of your former students, Trevor Hauser, um, is that when when they're getting advice from speakers who are my age and your age, that, you know, well, here's how you build a career in a field. They're almost to a person pushing back and saying, well, that's not the way I'm going to do it. Mm -hmm. You know, I want to combine economics and biology. I want to combine design and politics. And I'm going to do it in, in, in whatever ways I can because the problems are too important for us to think that we can just silo ourselves. And so um, I'm not sure this you know, answers your question well, but, but I actually sense a certain optimism, a creativity, and um, an appetite on the part of young people to make change. And frankly, that's a big part of why I'm excited to be here. You know, I really do think it, 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 there's no way to not be cynical if if you can only think about what's going to happen in 2020, because I can't predict, you can't predict, um, but it's going to get messy and it could get messier before it gets better. But I think there's a path through if we create the avenues for young people to have the power that they often feel they don't. I mean, I want to ask you to talk a little bit more about that. You're a professor of political science American politics at a, a really pivotal moment, a pivotal day in our nation's history. And, you know, the impeachment process is going to be what it's going to be. The election is going to be what it's going to be. But there is a social and political and ideological residue of these kinds of struggles. And that's really where you've spent a lot of your career thinking about how America thinks about politics and how thoughts are organized organizationally, institutionally, and in yeah. movements. How do you see this this impeachment moment playing out in, in those terms? In highly partisan terms. I mean, I don't know that I have anything more profound than what most of us are hearing. You know, I, I think we are living in a hyper-partisan moment in our politics. And, um, and the partisanship, I mean, the thing that I think political scientists have figured out, but that doesn't seem to be enough a part of the public debate, is that the the hyperpartisanship its formation is asymmetric that is to say it's not both sides becoming more polarized it is one side the the republican party has over the last 40 years moved dramatically in a more conservative direction mm -hmm. and in fact the democratic party to the extent you want to reduce this to our two parties has has moved just a bit towards the center and and what we're facing in, is is that as our kind of political problem in in a moment in which we're also coming to terms with a a, a profound inequality, economic, social, and racial inequality in our society, much of which isn't new, but it's getting worse. And so you have, you know, you have one explanation, a racialized and xenophobic explanation that the likes of President Trump offers for like, well, how did we, how did this happen? Who is doing this to us? And it turns out it's, it's other poor people, but they're poor people who don't look like you, mm -hmm. is his message to white people. And, and then you have the kind of Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren analysis, which again is slightly different from where the the progressive movement has been. It's much more populist. And they're saying, actually, there's a class analysis here. And this is that the very rich have gotten much, much richer while the rest of us haven't gained any ground. And and we're finding a lot of Americans gravitate to one message or the other at a time when – and those are kind of populist messages at the same time as our ideological messages, conservative and progressive, are further and further apart. Mm -hmm. And and 
so then the question is, how does this? How do you? How do you remedy it? And um, you know, so I spent three years building a think tank that was aimed at trying to correct the asymmetry in what I called the war of ideas. That conservatives had the upper hand. That you know, the way we start public and policy debates in this country is that limited government, unfettered free markets, limited notions of family. That that's that's what you have to argue against or have to begin an argument with. And um, and what we were going to build at Roosevelt, and in many ways Roosevelt is thriving on this front, is um, is a place that was going to offer alternative narratives on those things. The, the challenge is um, what I came, what I came to believe is that sh- shifting this asymmetry, changing the war of ideas, is absolutely essential. But the problems in our politics are more fundamental. When you think about the kind of inequalities in the economy, the political asymmetries, um, and and so I that's what got me focused on young people. When the opportunity to work at Truman and then the opportunity to come and work with you here at City College came up, that, to think about how you can engage young people in the project of making change. And I think our way through is in in you know what we as academics would call movement politics. I mean, I, I and this is for a guy who lived in Washington and kind of thought and and operated in fairly elite political circles. But I think the change is going to come from the outside. There's there's it's not going to happen from within Washington. Um, the the erosion of democracy by capitalism, in some sense, um, has made that almost impossible. The flow of money in our politics makes that almost impossible. So it's going to have to come from the outside. And that's why I think what we're doing is so important. I mean, I really think and, – and I think the role, if, if I may say, just – you know, part of what makes City College so special is that we are a leader in public higher education and public urban higher education. And part of what I think, you know, if you look at the analysis that's out there, if we don't address the disinvestment in public higher education and just a, a, a belief that has somehow become pervasive in our country that public higher education is not necessary to the economic well-being and the shared success of our people – we're, we're going to see things get worse before they get better. And so for me, you know, there's the very kind of practical daily opportunity to affect change at a place like City College, working with our students, with our faculty and with our staff. But there's also this larger project, which I think you're very much committed to, which is we have to reignite a conversation about higher education and public higher education and why it matters. Because across the country over the last 40 years, states have been disinvesting Mm -hmm. in exactly the institutions that have been the engines of economic and social mobility in their states and in this country. If you want to understand how the United States became a world power in the second half of the 20th century, a big part of it has to do with affordable, outstanding public higher education. And we we have to make that a part of the conversation about how we restore our democracy. So I want to now take this. I, I, I mean, obviously, I totally agree. I think the, 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 the project of City College, of CUNY, um, the, the way that we've kind of staked out our territory as leaders nationwide in social mobility really speaks to what it means to rebuild a democracy that's starting to stumble. So you've got now these generations of students that are coming through the Colin Powell School. And I guess my question is, is there a philosophy in the school about educating towards movement building, towards the construction of advocates coming out as opposed to, you know, economists and school teachers? And right. I, I mean, how, how do you – is that our role or, or – or, how do you think about I, that? I, I think it is. And, you know, it's a conversation we're only just beginning for me with our colleagues. Um, but, you know, we are the Colin Powell School for Civic and Global Leadership. And I feel like part of our charge is to equip our students and our graduates to be leaders in our world, to be leaders domestically, internationally. Um, and and that uh, and, and part of what that requires of us from the moment they hit the Colin Powell School, and this is something we're giving a lot of thought to, is that we help them understand where they can find their power, what that can look like. Because, you know, at the end of the day, they also just need to pursue careers that they want to be participating in, you know, things that fit their personality types. But alongside it, we want them to understand that they have power to affect change. And we can do that across the curriculum, but we can also do it by making sure they have the opportunity to be engaged in our communities. Um, and um, and we're seeing success. I mean, you've seen generation of students through, and now I have the advantage of, of seeing it too. Yeah. Um, you know, um, I just had breakfast yesterday with one of our first Colin Powell fellows, actually, who's been doing international development and international refugee work around the Middle East, Mario Patino. Oh, fantastic. And uh, he's, I mean, he's a great example of a guy who's found his power, has found his ability to affect change, 
um, and is and is an inspiration to other people. Yeah. And uh, we're doing that, and I think it's exciting. It's one of the advantages of staying with an institution uh, as a teacher. And, and there are people out there I know listening who are professors and teachers to see your students come back to you years later. And and um, and if you're lucky. Uh, to think that you had some small share in, in sort of shaping. I mean, everybody owns their own future, but teachers play a role, and, and, and it's, it's good to be in that role, especially when you, when you encounter somebody 10, 15, 20 years later. Um, and on the phone, real treat actually for, I think, both Professor Rich and myself, we have Colin Powell School alumnus, Muhammad Alam, uh, Mr. Alam graduated with honors from the Colin Powell School with a bachelor's degree in political science, and he had a concentration in government with a minor in public policy and public affairs. As a student, he was a Powell Fellow. He was a student ambassador at the Colin Powell School and a fellow in the Charles B. Rangel Center for Public Service. And he also co-founded and served as president of the Roosevelt Institute here at City College. This is a, a um, a franchise of the nationwide campus-based network that Professor Rich uh, in, initiated and built while he was the director of the Roosevelt Institute. Uh, Mr. Alam is a Muslim Bengali-American, the son of immigrants. Uh, he was born in New York and raised in Brooklyn. Um, and he's growing up in Buffalo as a law student. He's currently pursuing a law degree at the University of Buffalo. Uh, he served as a student attorney for the law school's community justice clinic, and that works to protect the rights of immigrants and refugees. He received the Man of the Year Award for his service to New York State as a young Democrat. And in July 2019, he was elected to serve a two-year term as the national vice president of the Young Democrats of America. Um, he was also appointed to serve a two-year term on the Youth Council of the Democratic National Committee. This is a guy who right out of the gate has embraced a life of public service, and I mean that as a student on campus and continuing into his graduate years. So it's a real thrill, Mohammed, to uh, welcome you back uh, on campus and to From City to the World. Are, are you there? Yeah, thank you so much. Can you, can you hear me? We can hear you, and, and so can awesome. all of America. <laughs> well, hopefully they're all listening and not watching uh, this circus listen, uh, on TV. If they knew you were on the line, they'd all be listening. Um, <laughs> listen, well, thank uh, you so much for uh, for having me. It's a pleasure to be on. And and um, as I was listening as the two of you were talking, and I just realized how intertwined uh, my my presence on campus was with Professor Richards. I mean, we. <laughs> I, I helped start Roosevelt while he was the president of the national organization. I was a Skadden Fellow. I, I even applied to the Truman Fellowship while he was um, the executive secretary. So we've we, been, we uh, kind of overlapped on we've been every following possible. following each other. Yeah. Nice. That's nice. Well, listen, um, this is a really good segue. The first question I wanted to ask you was just um, I'd like you to, to, to describe your work in the Young Democrats of America, how you came to this group. Um, what shaped your rise through the organization and, and how you're thinking about it as, as, as an organization with a role to play at, at this moment in, in our national history? Yeah, definitely. I mean, all, all great questions. Um, uh, I'll try to kind of uh, shorten my, my history in, in how I got here, but ultimately it started off when I was a student at City College of New York. I, I went to a local community event. Um, with the West Harlem Democratic Club, uh, which uh, was run by now one of my best friends. Uh, I just attended his wedding, Corey Ortega, um, and he's running for city council um, of that district. Um, he got me involved um, in local politics, and then he pushed me to join the Manhattan Young Democrats, which is the county-level uh, party. Um, and over a few years, I, I rose towards presidency of that organization, um, and then one of my other uh, good friends, best friends, uh, Mike Corbett, who was president of the New York State Young Democrats, which is now the state organization, appointed me to a role. Um, and then I represented the state of New York to the national organization, which is the Young Democrats of America. So just as the DNC is structured, they have the national party, state party, and county party. The Young Democrats are similarly structured. And so I kind of rose through the ranks from local to state to now national when I ran uh, with an amazing team uh, of my uh, of uh, friends, uh, Joshua Harris Hill, who's our national president, 
Um, and so throughout throughout all of that, I I kind of started getting involved with the with the national party as well, the DNC. Um, Grace Meng, who was my congresswoman in Queens, um, and one of my close friends is Michael Blake, who's now running for Congress in the Bronx. Yes. Both of them ran for vice chair of the national party, um, and I kind of volunteered on their campaigns, and now they both serve as the vice chair of the DNC. Um, so that's how I, I got involved in this, what seems now uh, 10 years ago um, when I started, you know. So, you know, there was a, there was a huge push in, in the aftermath of the 2016 elections to recruit and support new candidates for elected office. Um, and, you know, that, that means, you know, people of color, women, young people. And I guess this is a question both for you, Mohammed, and, and, and for Dean Rich. I mean, how successful do you think we have been in, in broadening the field and recruiting talent and directing people towards elected uh, opportunity. And, and Mohammed, I want to ask you that from your vantage point in, in the Young Democrats of America and then Dean Rich as, as an educator. But Mohammed, why don't you take the first crack at it? Yeah, definitely. I think um, through the Young Dems, I've seen a, a massive increase in involvement of young people, uh, especially diverse young people from every type of background, gender, sexual orientation, religion, uh, to get more involved in politics. And and I, I want to say that it's just because we've been getting better at organizing, but, but there is a small part or, or a decent part paid by the election of Donald Trump. Um, he spurred uh, a nationwide kind of gut reaction of people who wanted to get more involved because they felt that something went drastically wrong um, that election. And so we, we see... 2016 um, as a prime example of how many seats we won back um, in red districts, districts that voted almost 60% Trump, but we flipped that member, um, and now they are uh, largely uh, the youngest uh, Congress we've ever elected, the mm-hmm. most um, gender diverse and the most sexually diverse uh, Congress we've ever elect- elected. So um, young people are becoming... Um, uh, the largest voting block uh, in, in the United States. And I think um, we're, we're beginning to realize how, how powerful that is now. Mm-hmm. Andy? Yeah, I mean, I think everything Mohammed said is right. And, and, and the only thing I would add is, um, you know, it starts with President Trump in some sense as a target. Here's what we need to unseat. But, it, but it's also informed by we can win. And, you know, and that's Barack Obama showed us that you can win and be a person of color mm-hmm. at the very highest levels. And now what's happening in Congress and at state legislatures is further affirmation that people from all backgrounds can run and they can win. They can get the money they need. They can get the support they need um, and um, and they can get power. And that is very um, it's not the right word, but intoxicating. I mean, it really starts to send a signal that we're in a place of change and that combined mm-hmm. with the young electorate. I think it's going to be hard to go backwards on these things. The demographics are changing um, in some key yeah. parts of the country. Texas is, you know, depending on which analysis you read, somewhere in the next five to eight years, it's going to flip. There's mm-hmm. no way it won't. Mm-hmm. Georgia, Georgia, it's happening. Virginia, it's already really happened. We could go around the country and you can see it happening. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yep. yep. Uh, you know, I, I think, you know, Andy, in your answer, you said, you know, it started with President Trump. But, I mean, in some sense, you also set a context for, you know, the evolution of our politics is really there's a long-term trend. And it includes things like the massive entry of corporate money into the electoral system with Citizens United and the way in which capitalism and democracy have, have, have kind of overshadowed one another. So I, I, I want to come back to Muhammad with this question. You, you know, you have a strategy to to mobilize people for electoral politics and to really think in a different way about power and how do you balance the 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 response specifically to a Trump presidency on the one hand against the the knowledge that I know you have that we're lo- we're talking about something that is much more structural much more deeply seated much more long term than than his three years in 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 uh, in the White House. Yeah, uh, so so I think um, young people across the country and and um, of every generation, not just mine, 
um, have always been aware or are now becoming more aware of all of the structural problems between criminal justice, between money and uh, politics, and, and all of these other issues, gun, gun violence. Um, but they, they have always kind of needed or have looked for um, some type of spark or moment for them to get involved. And I think Trump was kind of that ignition um, for them to take all of the values that they already hold and, and want to do something about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but in terms of how we, how we combat this, I mean, we, we have to acknowledge that money plays a huge part in our politics, for good or for worse, and, and right now it's definitely for the worse. Mm-hmm. But we have candidates like uh, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders who, who have proven that grassroots organizing has, has been able to outrage um, even even most of the established candidates who come in with a lot of money. I mean, over the last two quarters, we've seen the, the filings that small dollar, small dollar donations have led to more fundraising than large donations. So it's very possible to win um, locally and through grassroots efforts. And, and, it's, and it's the way we move forward as a country once we kind of do away with the influence of capitalism in our politics. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mohammed, I want to talk to you a little bit about sort of issue hierarchies. You, you, you know, I mean, obviously, this question of progressive politics or democratic politics versus, you know, Trump-era republicanism is is a kind of overshadowing uh, political narrative. But as you go around and you talk to young people about political involvement. You can run through a list of issues, healthcare, gun violence, the role of money in politics, the, you know, the status of immigrants in, in our society and the way they've been treated. In your experience, where are we, um, you know, which of these issues is most captivating to the demographic that you're specifically talking to? Or, or, or is that not the way to, to approach the question? Yeah, I, I, I don't think that's the way to approach this question, just, just simply because both, one, the Democratic Party is such a large tent, and, and so many different views and political stances exist within it, and even further within the young Democrat branch. Um, all of us are so passionate about the, the issues that affect us directly. Uh, some of my personal um issues that I advocate for on a daily basis is criminal justice reform and gun violence prevention. Right. I was just in D.C. last week with the Center for American Progress and the Gener- Gener- Generation of Progress organizing around gun violence. Um, and I've done, as a student attorney, I, I worked on representing an undocumented family, getting them asylum in, in the United States. Mm-hmm. So it's it, issue-specific um, kind of ranges widely around um, our, our age group. Mm-hmm. So, so the framing is more about how do we win local and national seats so we can advocate for all of the issues that we want to advocate. Because if we, hire, if we create a hierarchy of these issues, um, then a lot, of people, a lot of people will feel like they're not a part of the conversation. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to ask you another of, of these kind of everybody says this is how to think of it, and you can tell me if it's the right way or the wrong way. There's a lot of talk. Uh, right now about what's the best way to put a winning coalition together for for 2020 and and you know one one view you see is we have to excite people and the way to do it is to recruit progressive candidates that will ask questions that haven't been asked before and make proposals that that are bold and and will change things utterly and you could put a Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren in those camps and then there are others that say well what you really have to do is capture the middle so you want somebody who splits the difference between kind of a traditional Republican and and the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. So you get a Joe Biden and an Amy Klobuchar and, and maybe a Pete Buttigieg in that area. How, what do you, first of all, what do you think about that way of characterizing the dilemma? And if you think it's a good way of doing it, what do you think a winning strategy is? And I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm interested in what both of you think about this. So, uh, but Mohammed, let's start with you. Yeah, I, I think I cut out a little bit um, oh. in, in between that, but I, I understand the question and as in how do we build a winning coalition for the upcoming election and, and so forth. And specifically, you know, you know, do we you know, uh, push a progressive <coughs> agenda that will be exciting and mobilizing to new voters or 
is the job to kind of capture the political center? Yeah, I mean, this is uh, a, a generally difficult question. I think everybody, um, especially political pundits um, and candidates for office, will have varying answers. I don't know what the winning strategy is, and, and I know that might be kind of a disheartening answer, given that we're all involved in national-level politics at this point. But it's hard to say that we want a clearly progressive, left-leaning agenda, because then I've, I've traveled to Alabama, and we have a meeting in Kansas, and I know the politics in those states are drastically different than me being a born-and-raised uh, New Yorker. Because um, we're always going to be more left than other states, um, but also picking a platform that is down the down the middle is is definitely not exciting for folks. Um, so, so I think the Democratic Party is is having this constant kind of growing pains in advocating for issues that we know are right, but also trying to do so in a way where we win both the moderate states and the left leaning states. Um, and 2016 has been kind of a, a great example, and we, we elected a lot of progressives, but also we elected um, people like Max Rhodes, who's a mm -hmm. Democrat from Staten Island, and he's having to be a bit more moderate in his stances than um, AOC, who's in Queens. Right. Um, so it's, it's, we're, we're kind of having to figure that out as we go, but there isn't really a one-shoe-fits-all model here. Mm -hmm. Dean Rich? Yeah, I guess I... I generally think we're overthinking this in uh -huh. many ways and that I, you know, I am generally of the view that any of them could win or all of them could lose. And, you know, we're we're in a difficult we should not underestimate President Trump and his abilities politically, but also his abilities to get reelected in large part, too, because unemployment is a record low and our economy is thriving. Mm -hmm. And under usually under these circumstances, the incumbent gets reelected. So despite everything we might feel and think from sitting in New York City, um, that's a, a real risk. But I, I think first and foremost, the American people want to be inspired. I think what I hear when I'm out talking to folks is um, an interest in someone who can bring a moral leadership. That we, It's not that we just need an elected official. We need a moral leader in this country. And that could yeah. come from the left. That could come from the middle. Um, I, I, I think people tune in on some policy, but but that's not the thing that really is the, the heart of the campaign in the end of the day. And so so I, I think we overthink it or we sort of think, oh, so-and-so is not electable. I don't buy it. And then, and then the last piece I would say is, um, and this goes to what Mohammed knows better than me, which is, and then once we have a candidate, they just have to run a good campaign. Mm -hmm. You know, and in 2016, there were blind spots in Hillary Clinton's campaign that led to the result that we got. They have to have the absolute best information, the best data, the best team, and any of them could win it, or they could all mm -hmm. lose it. You know, but I, but I think we're wasting our time, quarterback or what's the right word? You know, kind of armchair quarterbacking. Arm, yeah, yeah, kind of like ah, oh, you know, but her the Medicare for all or whatever idea we want to sort of worry is the one that will bring us a downfall of a candidate. I just don't think that's right. I don't think that's how American politics works. Well, so now let me ask another thing that people sometimes worry about and, and invite you both to tell me not to worry about it. Uh, are, are you at all concerned about, you know, a couple things about the primary process? One is that it has been such a long process. You know, we haven't, we're, we're still, you know, weeks and weeks away from the Iowa caucuses and lots of people have dropped out before a single vote was cast. Um, we have the whole thinking around how you get onto the debate stage and also whether it matters whether you're on a debate stage with with 20 other people but i mean give me your thoughts on on how it's gone so far and 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 what we maybe have learned about mounting uh an effective opposition um muhammad yeah, let's let's start with you yeah, I mean, it, it definitely is an exciting time uh, in our in our country's politics. So there's kind of like two ways that I try to think about it, just so I can uh, balance myself. One, in terms of um, my thought process as a political strategist, is, is that this is very messy, and the American public don't know who to believe in or who to trust. They think it's divisive. They see a lot of these Democrats attacking each other rather than attacking the Republican Party. And, and, and so that creates a lot of concern, in, um, and, and it brings up a lot of questions about electability, who's, who's going to be clear, um, clearly able to beat 
um, Trump in the presidential election. So, so there's that one way of thinking about it. And then as, as kind of just a, a citizen um, who, who's partaking in politics, it's, it's a great thing to watch people actually having to work for your vote. I mean, this is the purest form of democracy. Everyone mm-hmm. is able to run, or I mean, if you're 35 and older, but uh, you, you get to see people advocating directly to you and not someone who's just clearly going to win the nomination and therefore doesn't have to put in the time or effort. So, so there's this uh, kind of dual thought process that I, 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 I at least see this with. Um, but, but over time, people forget because in, in the last presidential election, there were just a handful of candidates and everyone knew that it was going to be between Hillary and Bernie. Mm-hmm. Um, but throughout time, there have been very, very contentious primaries and, and we keep forgetting that. So this is kind of going back to our roots a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think Mohammed's last point is that is an important one, which is you know we, we'll get through this. It feels it feels ugly right now, and it it is kind of ugly. And you know if you're knee deep in it, as some of my friends are, it it feels really hard. Um, but I think for us, the voters, we'll get to the other side of this, and and then it'll be a question of kind of how on the back end of the first primaries, the latter part of the primaries go, and then the general election. I think one thing to be really mindful of. Um, maybe more so than than has been the case in the past, not that it hasn't been a problem before, is voter suppression. Yeah. And, and you know, and we're yeah. also heading into the census. And this has become a like a capital P political project for Republicans particularly to mm-hmm. win elections in non-majoritarian ways and to essentially try to retain power even when they don't have the voting numbers. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, this Stacey Abrams in Georgia is leading an effort to try nationally to make sure we're doing what we can. Eric Holder is doing some of the same sorts of work, the former attorney general. I think this is yeah. essential for Democrats. I think it's essential for our democracy. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and we, we don't pay enough attention to it. What yeah, you- definitely. I, I just want to add on um, Eric Holder, um, who helped start the National Re- Democratic National Redistricting Committee and they hear them who started there by the young Dems and throughout the country are partnering with these organizations to, to kind of get in, into that fight as well. So, I w- so let's, let's, let's end on, on that note since it's such a, it's an important question. And, you know, what's going on right now, their efforts in Georgia and I think Wisconsin to purge voter rolls, but we know there's lots of other ways that voters are suppressed. And if you're talking to citizens... About you know, organizations have strategies, and we can we can go to court, and we can file lawsuits and various briefs and all of that. But talk about some of the other ways that that voting is suppressed, and and things that ordinary people need to know in order to ensure that their democratic rights and the rights of their family and neighbors are protected. Uh, Mohammed, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, so voter purges. Are, are more of a, a recent, or, or I, I would say in the last couple of decades, but there have been way more institutionalized ways to prevent people from voting out so much as the differences of ID. So certain states, you could have a student ID and, and prove that you're a resident, but that would not be eligible to vote. But you can have a, a gun license and be able to vote. So they're, they're clearly targeting a certain demographic because if you have a gun license, obviously... You're, you're probably a supporter of the Second Amendment, and that means you're most likely a conservative, and therefore we want that district to be red. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're a student, then we know that you're probably educated and, and you're capable of free thought, and, and therefore you're going to vote um, liberal. And so there are these built-in institutional attempts that have existed for now almost 80, uh, 90 years, and, and we... we are working with organizations throughout the country to, one, create a grassroots organizing effort and getting everyone to register no matter what, and then having um, a litigious arm through the DNC, which has the voter protection um, office within, within the organization now, um, and Stacey Evans' fair fight in, in taking people to court for um, unlawful voter purchase. Mm-hmm. What, what should somebody do? if they suspect that they're witnessing some form of uh, voter suppression? Mohammed? Well, yeah. n- normally you would report that to the Secretary of State of your state's government or, mm-hmm. um, or the, the local or county um, election office because they, they have the best means to do something about it. 
But at the same time, if you're in Georgia and the state secretary of state is the person running for governor and he's right. the one doing the voter purges, you, you'll kind of feel like you have no way to address this. So, so one is kind of advocacy. You, you start organizing, you start telling people about it. Um, you try to get as much attention around this as possible. Start asking your friends, your family, making phone calls to your local elected leaders, um, and and then hopefully with enough traction, um, we can we can do something more about it. Mm-hmm. Andy, same question. I, I mean, I think everything Mohammed said is right. I think for lawyers right now, it's kind of an all hands on deck moment, and yeah. and there is going to be a lot of litigation. There already is, um, and for advocates, it's a really important moment for for people. For people who aren't lawyers and aren't advocates, I think it's important to talk to your neighbors, talk talk to your family, make sure everybody's registered, vote, check. I mean, they can't just purge you. Like it doesn't, right. it does. It's not that fragile. Although there's efforts in some states where that might happen. Not going to happen in New York. And so the biggest risk is you're not properly registered where you're where you're likely or able to vote, um, and that you don't get out and vote. And 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 I will tell you one thing we've known for a long time, but we've got all kinds of new evidence. Is the surest indication that someone will vote is that someone asked them to vote. And right. so everybody, yeah. all of us, can play a role in just getting the people we know to go out and participate in the elections. That feels like a really good note to to end on. Um, thank you everybody for listening to From City to the World. I want to especially thank our two guests, Andrew Rich, the Dean of the Colin Powell School for Civic and Global Leadership here at City College. Thank you, Andy, for your time. Uh, Mohammed, what a treat to have you uh, on the line. He is a Colin Powell School alumnus, Vice President of the Young Democrats of America. Do either of you have a last pithy uh, charge to the audience, Mohammed? What should people know? Uh, <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm very hopeful. Um, given all of the contention and disparity we see in our country's politics, I am still very hopeful, as always. Um, it, it comes in waves, and we will get through this. So I have no doubt um, that we will move forward as a country and as a people. Excellent, Andy. I was just going to say, with leaders like Mohammed, our future is bright. All right, we are. <laughs> Thank la- you so much, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. We are going to get through this. The show is produced by Angela Harding and yours truly, Vince Boudreau. I'm your host, Vince Boudreau, the president of the City College of New York, and you have been listening to From a City to the World. Bye-bye, everybody. Like what you're hearing? Please subscribe on your podcast app of choice to From City to the World. And also, iTunes listeners, please make sure to rate and review to help new listeners find the show. But, I mean, come on, be a little kind, would you?